0: As we come to our um, text this morning, it is 2 Corinthians, and we are in chapter 6. Would you stand for the reading and the hearing of the Word of God? I'll be reading verses 1 through 10. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labor, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, Through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors, and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold, we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Would you pray with me? Spirit of the living God, we offer you our glory, worship, and praise as we seek to listen and as we seek to be fed by your word. As the one who inspired this word, may you bring understanding to our hearts and minds. We seek that wisdom which is from above and which you promise to give to those who ask. In the name of our Savior, amen. You may be seated. as you may recall, through much of this, uh, the, the early um, chapters of this letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has been seeking to uh, defend the legitimacy of his um, apostolic calling and of the genuineness of um, and the trustworthiness of his ministry. Well, the Apostle is also concerned for the welfare of the Corinthians— and that's um, the subject of this these opening verses, where he urges the Corinthians not to turn away from the truth and to recognize that now is the day of salvation. Uh, we, we immediately see Paul's concern for the Corinthians, and, and he's concerned about their spiritual standing. He says right away, working together with him, that is, he's he sees himself as a fellow worker with God. He recognizes that he is divinely sent um, to minister. So working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. He's concerned about their spiritual standing. And so um, remember um, that standing in the background of this letter are these traveling evangelists who have taken up residence at Corinth. These evangelists are, in fact, from Paul's um, uh, estimation, they are false teachers. They are teaching a different gospel. They are the ones that Paul's been um, uh, laboring to demonstrate are themselves the ones in error. But in order to gain a foothold within the church, these, these traveling evangelists have been seeking to delegitimize the calling and the ministry of the apostle Paul. In keeping with one of the themes of 2 Corinthians, Paul's, um, uh, one of the things that Paul wants to, to communicate is if they reject Paul, if they reject his message, the practical outcome will be that the Corinthians are unwittingly placing themselves outside of Christ. They are placing themselves outside of the gospel because it is the true gospel that the apostle Paul has been preaching it will mean that their supposed Christian conversion was in reality not a genuine work of God. And this is in part what Jesus warns his disciples about back in Matthew 24. Jesus says to his own disciples, he says, and many false prophets will arise and will lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who perseveres to the end will be saved. And this brings up this this important question. This is a question that the New Testament um, uh, uh, treats um, uh, at least on a semi regular basis. How do we know if our faith is genuine? That's part of the question that's being raised in a passage like this. There is a category of people who believe that they are genuine Christians, who believe that they are on their way to the, the eternal kingdom of God, but are in fact deceived. And so the, the the question arises: how do you know? How do you know that you're not one of these individuals who are deceived? And one of the answers that the New Testament, and one of the answers that the Apostle Paul gives here, um, is th- th- those who in fact have experienced a genuine work of God, will persevere to the end in their faith. Even in the midst of persecution and hardship or temptation, the one who perseveres to the end in faith, these are the ones who will be saved. And this doesn't mean, okay, so this doesn't mean that Christians don't fail. This doesn't mean that Christians do not sin and sin miserably. All you have to think about is think about the Old Testament. Think of, of King David, for instance, and, and his episode with Bathsheba and, and the murder of Uriah. Or think about the, the great apostle Peter, uh, of whom Jesus says, you know, on this rock, I will build my church. But on the night of Jesus' arrest, where's Peter? He is denying Christ, and not just denying him. He is swearing to God that he doesn't even know him. I think in part, the reason the Bible gives us these examples is to encourage us that when we think about what does this perseverance look like, it's not perfection. What it does look like is when we fall, when we fall into sin or into false teaching, the Lord rescues us. And a sign of that that divine rescuing is that we come to our senses, that we recognize and admit and confess our sins, and that we uh, return back to the Lord. But the warning nevertheless stands. Guard the good deposit is, is what the apostles telling the Corinthians. This good deposit of faith And how do they guard it? By maintaining and remaining true to the gospel, to the apostles' teaching. And the same is true of all of us. Guard your life. Guard your doctrine closely. And after his appeal to guard the good deposit that has been given to them by God, Paul continues to show the Corinthians why they should find uh, both him and his uh, ministry trustworthy. And again, he has to do this because he is sustaining uh, many charges and accusations from these these false teachers. First, the apostle says that his ministry was commended by his amazing endurance in the face of an onslaught of persecution and suffering. In verse 3, the apostle writes, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault, May be found with our ministry. Paul is—he is his part of his goal here. His intent is to show that whatever accusations were not always given the the, the accusation charges explicitly, but whatever they were, what he's working to show is um, he's he's essentially telling the Corinthians, you don't just have to take my word that you know I'm genuine or that my ministry is genuine. He's saying, look at the evidence of my life. And the very first thing he wants to show them, um, and, and to this end, is that whatever charges are coming, they are without basis. They are without foundation. He wants them to see that that one can, um, the only way you can reasonably explain the Apostle Paul, the only way you can really reasonably explain the, the level of suffering he endured, and yet he continued to endure and persevere is in fact that he has been genuinely called. It is that he is empowered by the Holy Spirit. His is a spirit-filled ministry. And in verse 4, we see the main quality that Paul wants to emphasize. And it is the quality of endurance right there at the beginning of uh, verse 4. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And here's the the, kind of the overarching uh, theme, by great endurance. (laughs) He's saying, look, I'm not bragging. I may even be understating the situation. When you take uh, into consideration all that he had experienced uh, in his life and ministry, he's basically saying, you don't have to simply take my word that I'm called by God. Talk's cheap, right? But consider the evidence. Consider that given all that I've suffered, I've not backed off uh, in even the smallest way from the things that I've been teaching you, and especially when it comes to the the core message of the new covenant, the core message of reconciliation, that through the death of Jesus, we have the forgiveness of sins. And so then Paul begins to catalogue the the kinds of of, um, challenges that he's experienced, that he's had to endure. And he lists nine things that are connected uh, with his suffering in in verses um, uh, 4 and 5. He says, so these nine um, qualities, they can kind of be divided into threes. And the first are just this kind of general category of hardships, when he says, in affliction, hardships, calamities. Just these kind of general terms. And then he gives some examples, the next three beatings, imprisonments, riots. And then he talks about kind of some of the voluntary ways in which he has suffered. And that would include things like his labors, probably at times around the clock, ministering and teaching um, uh, the, the Corinthians. Sleepless nights, sleepless nights come. When you are serving in ministry, sleepless nights come when you are misunderstood, or perhaps, you, you know, you said the wrong thing and it grieves you. Um, sleepless nights when, you know, people around you are suffering. The, these are the sorts of things that keep um, God's people up at night. And so often we think this is a design, a design flaw in our faith. And what the Apostle Paul is modeling is no, that's actually part of the calling very often. It's part of the cost, the reality of following Jesus. Well, not only was it sleepless nights, verse 6 or verse 5, but also hunger. You know, you can imagine they didn't have fast food restaurants, you know, on every corner. Um, and so there'd probably be times where he's traveling. He was going without food, or this could also include the idea that he was regularly fasting on his, on, for his own spiritual sake, but also for the sake of those he's ministering to. Paul is saying one who suffers and keeps on suffering like this, why would you do it if your faith was not, in fact, genuine? And how could you do it if the Spirit of God was, not in, was in fact, not with you? And he continues to say, um, you know, this is his modeling the, the ministry of Jesus himself. Jesus himself told his disciples that a servant is not greater than his master. Jesus says, if they hated me, they will hate you. And this is, in part, what the apostle has experienced. In Acts 20, Paul gives a little more of his mindset when it comes to his suffering. in, In Acts 20, verses 23 and 24, "'The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course.'" and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He understood whatever the cost, it was worth it in order to fulfill the calling that the Lord Jesus himself had given to him. And so he saying for this reason, you Corinthians and those who will read this in any age, you can have confidence that I am a true minister of God, that my ministry and my teaching is from God and is fully trustworthy. And he continues, it's not just the sufferings that he experienced, but Paul's ministry was also commended by his consistent Christian character. This is verses 6 and 7. Here Paul begins to list the positive ways in which God's grace was at work in his life. Like the previous list of sufferings, this positive list also includes nine qualities. And so if we just work through this briefly, by purity, that is, ask yourselves, is my life above reproach? And they would say, yes, it most certainly is. And that purity also includes the idea of sincerity, which um, uh, almost is... is, uh, uh, Well, it's just very clear in his ministry. Knowledge. The apostle says, I have worked hard to know the scriptures. This isn't just me, just flouting opinions, but I have given years of my life to the study of the word of God. I minister with knowledge. And then he continues, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the only thing that explains portions of the apostles' ministry is the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit that gives life, the Holy Spirit that brings uh, conversion, that brings genuine fruit. And he continues, his life and ministry was marked by genuine love, by truthful speech. Again, that's the, in 2 Corinthians This especially is concerning that core message, the gospel of reconciliation found only in Jesus Christ. And he says, and this was with the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. You know, you might think of a soldier having two weapons or perhaps a a sword in one hand, a shield in the other. And Paul is saying, that's in part, I'm a good soldier. And my job, as he goes on in 2 Corinthians to to tell us in more detail, my job has been to confront these strongholds of philosophy, strongholds of worldly false beliefs, and to take those strongholds captive as he preaches the word in the power of the Holy Spirit. And in so doing, this ministry is bringing freedom to those who were captured by these false um, ideologies and worldly strongholds. And this leads to the paradox of Paul's ministry, and that is this. You might think that a man of this character would be universally loved, but not the case. Paul's ministry was both loved and despised loved and despised. And this is still in the context of those realities that he was forced to endure that serve in part to commend the divine nature of his calling and ministry. Verse 8, we we, we see this kind of paradox of, of response to his life and ministry. He just describes it as through honor and dishonor. That's what he has received, both honor and dishonor, through slander. People have lied about him up and down, and others have given him praise. He says, we are treated as imposters. Of course he is. He's treated as a false teacher by those who reject the message. But he himself knows that he is, in fact, in the place of truth. And so the paradox of Paul's ministry, and to a lesser degree, the ministry of all Christians, is that it was praised by some. It was criticized by others both loved and hated. It was believed by some, mocked by others. And this should not surprise us that the same is still true today. Jesus goes so far as to say that if we're being faithful to God's truth, it will provoke a negative reaction among some. In Luke six twenty six, he says, "'Woe to you when all people speak well of you, "'for so their fathers did to the false prophets.'" Woe to you when all people speak well of you. You see, the true message of God comes with sharp edges. The true message of God challenges the thinking of the world. The the truth of God, in many respects, declares to the world that your vision of reality is upside down. And it challenges them with this hard truth that there are basically two categories of people, those who are in Christ And those who are not. And those who are in Christ will find uh, reconciliation with God. They will know peace with God. They will know eternal life. And those who are not in Christ will have to account for their own sins. They will have to pay the consequences since they are not trusting in Christ to do so in their place. And the result of this will be they will be banished from the presence of a holy God for all eternity. Well, of course, this is not going to be um, universally loved. And for this reason, earlier, the apostle can describe it as, for some, it is a fragrance of life. But to others, it's a fragrance of death to those who are spiritually perishing. This is not a mistake. This is part of the way God has designed Christian ministry. And so he just continues in verse 9 as unknown and yet well-known. In some sense, um, yeah, there were a lot of people who didn't know him, but there were also a lot of people who did know him, but rejected him, (laughs) treated him as if he was unknown, even as he was very well known among the believers. Dying, and yet behold, we live, punished and yet not killed. And to this degree, you know, this is where the power of God was at work. He was threatened by death on a regular basis. And yet, by the only thing that explained his continuing ministry was the sovereign and divine intervention of God. Then Paul concludes this section with just an amazing statement of inexplicable victory. Verse 10. There he writes, As sorrowful, you can imagine the grief, the discouragements, the disappointments, the losses as sorrowful, yet nevertheless, deep down, always rejoicing. As poor, that is, from the world standards, financially, he was not making a lot of money from his teaching ministry. But in reality, he says, yet making many rich through the riches of Christ, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. If you are in Christ, we too will experience many sorrows as we make our journey to the eternal kingdom. And nevertheless, we can still rejoice because of the great blessings that the Lord has bestowed upon his people. You know, a sermon like this is necessary to help all those that God calls into ministry to have realistic biblical expectations of what it will mean to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to suffer at the level of the Apostle Paul, but there is a sense in which a genuine follower of Christ will meet hostility and hardship in this world. And if we don't understand that, it's very easy. If you think it's all going to go well, that's a recipe for burnout or flame out. Well, let's pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great model of the Apostle Paul, and Lord, we pray that we would be willing to stand, to count the cost, to suffer when uh, when it's necessary, and at the same time, to cultivate those great uh, spiritual qualities of, of genuine faith and godliness. And so, Lord, we pray that by your word and by your spirit, you would cultivate those things within each of us. And we pray that we would bring great glory to your name, that we would be a blessing to one another and to the world around us. And so we pray it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.